We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, March 8th, 2021, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It is great to have you with us as we attempt for this podcast to last longer than Jeremy Jeffress' tenure with the Nationals. Mark, I feel like if the life of this podcast can be longer than at least Jeffress' time with the Nats, we're doing something right. Uh, yeah, I would hope we, we survive longer than that. Two weeks is all that he made it in camp, and um, we're going to get to this. But it, it, there seems to be more to this story than we know at the moment as we tape this on uh, Sunday afternoon. There, there's You don't just get released two weeks in unless something happened, and in this case, probably something didn't have to do with baseball. Yes, Mike Rizzo said it had to do with personnel reasons, not personal reasons. We'll try to decipher that uh, coming up in just a little bit. But lots to discuss on this installment of Nats Chat. Very newsy last few days for the Nats. In addition to the uh, Jeffress saga, we've got the latest in the John Lester situation. That's coming up in just a moment. Max Scherzer and Patrick Corbin have made their exhibition debut. Some stuff to chew on with that. The Nats aces of the future, we hope. Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge pitched the other day. And a problem for the Nationals last season that we don't think has gotten nearly enough attention, the Nats defense. We'll uh, get into that as the show progresses. Story time with Mark uh, on the way today as well. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. And in fact, before we go any further, we've got to highlight maybe the single best tweet we've gotten so far. And that's saying something because we've got a lot of great tweets. But Tom Mirabella tweeted us the other day, again, at Nats underscore chat, of him listening to this podcast in Chiba, Japan. Mark, we have listenership in Japan. That's a beautiful thing. I told you, Al, Nat's fandom extends around the entire globe. I've heard from people from every corner in the past. It's great to know that we are big in Chiba, Japan. I, I've seen some of our analytics. I think we've had some downloads from uh, England, from Cambodia, I think maybe one or two we've had so far. And uh, shout out to Tom in Chiba, Japan. And like I said, this is not just a D.C. team. This is a team that has very broad reach, either because people have connections to D.C. or they've just fallen in love with the team from wherever they are. So great to hear from you wherever you are in the world. We are big in the land of the rising sun. I've been told Prime Minister Suga is a big Wander Suero fan. So you just never know where you're going to find Nats fans. But If you happen to be listening to us outside of the D.C. area, outside of the U.S. in particular, let us know. Send us a photo, as our guy Tom did. Again, 
at Nats underscore chat is how you can tweet us. You can also email us if you prefer that, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach the mastermind of this operation, Tim Shovers, for advertising inquiries. Again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. So, Mark, in our last installment of the podcast, we talked about the news of John Lester needing to have his thyroid removed. And, you know, it was a situation that, you know, we just weren't really quite sure about in terms of what was the true impetus for this and how long might Lester be out. You know, there are a lot of questions. There was, though, this optimistic feeling that the Nats had put forth of, you know what, he could be back with the team by next week. Well, here we are talking here. Dave Martinez on Sunday says, yeah, uh, Lester has a surgery on Friday and we expect him back with the team tomorrow, i.e. Monday. It looks like that optimistic projection is going to turn out to be the reality here. By all accounts, everything went smoothly. They are really encouraged by the results. They haven't necessarily offered a lot in terms of what actually was done or what the exact prognosis or diagnosis was. I think we're waiting to actually hear from from John himself here at some point. Hopefully in the next few days, we actually hear from him and he can give his side of this. But by all accounts, everything went well. He's back in West Palm Beach, should be back at the complex Monday and They feel like he was already progressing pretty well with his arm, that it shouldn't take much time to get him back up to speed. Davey didn't come out and say like a a specific date for actually coming back and pitching like he did, uh, you know, last week when they first announced this. Reading between the lines, I think they're very encouraged by this and believe that this isn't really going to be that much of a setback uh, and that we should see him here pretty soon. But, you know, above all else, I think everybody's relieved to know that there isn't anything that serious going on, doesn't appear, you know, again, because of his his past history with cancer and with lymphoma, that that raised a red flag for everyone when you hear about this. But it looks like everything went uh, well, routine surgery and recovery from it now, and, and hopefully we'll see him on the mound very soon. Great news, and this has developed quickly, but it looks like this has developed in, in, in a very good way, you know, all things considered. I mean, Davey revealed this news last Wednesday that Lester had flown back to New York to have this surgery, to have the thyroid removed. Surgery takes place on Friday, and then Davey on Sunday says, yeah, John should be back with us tomorrow, i.e. Monday. So uh, really couldn't have scripted it much better if, in fact, it had to happen. All right, so the other big Nats news item from Sunday was what we were just talking about, this Jeremy Jeffress thing. So Jeremy Jeffress is a reliever who the Nats signed Just a few weeks ago, a guy who's been around the majors for a while, he's been up and down over the last few years, but when he's been up, he's been quite up. ERA's under two in two of the last three seasons, including a 154 ERA last year for the Cubs. It was on Monday, February 22nd, that Davey confirmed the Nats had agreed with Jeffress on a minor league contract with an invite to big league spring training. Then on Sunday, out of nowhere, the Nats announced that they have released Jeremy Jeffress, Mark, you've been all over this. It is peculiar. It was certainly unexpected. What do we know? Well, not a lot at this point. Like I said, uh, we're talking on Sunday afternoon, and uh, there is a decent chance that by the time that any of you listen to this, we may know a lot more. But for now, all we know is that he was released out of the blue for what the team described as personnel reasons, not personal reasons, which is what I thought maybe at first when I saw that line. And I even went and confirmed that that was the right word. And they said, yes, it is for personnel reasons. Um, I've got a bunch of messages out to various people and trying to hear back from them and, and hopefully hear a little bit more. But uh, here's the thing. Jeffress, he came to camp, you know, a few days behind everyone else, but had been throwing already on his own. 
And anytime we've asked about him up to this point, Davey Martinez has had nothing but good things to say about him, particularly in how his arm looked and how he was building himself up. He's been throwing off the mound, uh, facing hitters, and I think they were feeling like he was getting close to being ready to make his game debut as recently as I think it was Thursday that Davey talked about him and said good things. So reading between the lines here, this does not sound like a baseball decision to me. This is not a case of a guy who they they looked at for the last two weeks and said, nah, you know what? We don't really need you. The arm doesn't look right. We don't think you're going to be ready to start the season, anything like that. I don't think it's that. I think this is something pertaining to off the field. Jeffers himself uh, tweeted something cryptic about uh, his former agent, Joshua Kusnick, having uh, essentially thrown him under the bus and didn't expand on that. Kusnick is saying he hasn't talked to the guy in two years. Like I said, a lot more to this than we know at the moment, and I think hopefully we'll find out a little bit more. You hope that everything turns out all right, that there's nothing serious that's going on behind the scenes. But I think the Nationals fully envisioned this guy being in their opening day road, opening day bullpen, even though he was on a minor league deal. So for them to release him this quickly before he pitches in a game suggests to me that there's something going on off the field, and this is not a baseball decision. Yeah, 100%. The Rizzo wording there, though, does kind of throw you off. Personnel, i.e. P-E-R-S-O-N-N-E-L, that would seem to suggest like, you know, there was a roster crunch or there was a baseball-y type reason to cut ties with Jeffress. But to your point, I mean, every expectation has been that even though he signed the minor league deal, Jeffress was going to make the team coming out of camp. Like I said, I mean, he's been really good, too, the last three years. This is not a Nats bullpen that can ill afford to just, you know, say no thank you to guys, you know, with that kind of resume in recent seasons. So it does seem like something happened. And uh, usually find out what those things are. But very strange. Basically, the Jeremy Jeffress tenure ends up being two weeks with the Nationals. It'll be a nice trivia question, like an inside joke Nats fans can make years from now. Jeremy Jeffress, you know, hopefully it lasts longer than Jeremy Jeffress' time. I hope nobody bought his jersey. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's incredible how quickly that ended up unraveling. But, you know, while we're talking bullpen, there was another item that popped up over the last few days, and hopefully this isn't too serious. It doesn't seem to be, but Tanner Rainey is dealing with an ailment here. Uh, I guess what, like a minor muscle strain uh, near his right collarbone? Is that right? Yeah, that's the way that Davey described it, that uh, as he started to throw, he, he reported this, so they decided to shut him down for a few days. But he has been throwing again, at least on flat ground, from up to as much as 90 feet. I don't think he's gotten back on a bullpen mound yet. They didn't seem to be overly worried about it, but for those late-inning relievers, they don't really need the full six weeks of spring training generally uh, because they're only going in short bursts, one or two innings. They only need often six or eight appearances to get themselves ready. Ideally, when you get down to that last week or two of camp, you want them throwing more regularly, throwing at least every other day, throwing on back-to-back days at least once just to make sure that, they, that they've kind of got their feet wet again and they're ready to do that. But you don't have to push them as much as, say, a starting pitcher. And so I think they're okay timeline-wise here as long as, you know, within the next week or so, he's, he's up and running and good to go. But, you know, when you combine this with the Jeffress move, that's where it starts to, in the bigger picture here, there's a little bit of a question mark. To me, the biggest selling point this bullpen has or had coming into the spring is its depth. And the fact that for the first time in a while, Davey may have 
four or even five guys he can trust late in games and not have to burn anybody out the way that he sometimes had to with Sean Doolittle, uh, Rainey at times, Daniel Hudson at times. And I know they're really encouraged by that. So if Rainey isn't quite ready yet, and obviously Jeffers is out of the picture now, that's now thinning the ranks of established late inning relievers. And that can have a domino effect. And, and so you hope that that doesn't ultimately turn into a problem for them. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the bullpen, once again, is in one of those states where if some things go well, then it could end up being a good bullpen. But if some of these 50-50 guys don't pan out, then we're kind of back to where we seemingly always are. And Mike Rizzo's having to make an in-season trade for bullpen help. I mean, like Daniel Hudson, right? Terrible year in 2020. We know what he was in 2019. So which version of Hudson are we going to end up seeing? You know, Will Harris had a very mixed 2020. What, what version of himself will be on display in 2021? his age 36 season, that kind of a thing. I mean, with Rainey, I know there's been a lot of excitement about what he is and will be in 2021. 14.2 strikeouts per nine innings last season. That is spectacular, even in today's day and age of high strikeout relievers. And you you say, all right, Rainey and Brad Hand, boy, that could be a lethal back end in terms of what you're able to do game in and game out. I I don't think we've discussed this this yet. I'm I'm just curious. Do you think Davey is going to go with a set closer, you know, a set ninth inning guy? Do you think it's going to be more matchup based? What's your sense on what Davey ideally is going to be doing uh, with his bullpen deployment this year? So I was surprised that um, that's maybe a week to 10 days ago. He referred to hand as being like in a perfect scenario, hand would be his closer. And I was a little surprised by that because I figured that he really is going to look at matchups and use whoever makes the most sense in, in which spots. Not not necessarily use four or five guys to close games, but hand from the left side and probably Hudson at least to start out from the right side, maybe Rainey if he establishes himself. I still feel deep down like if they're facing the Braves and Freddie Freeman is due up in the eighth inning and it's a one-run game, Brad Hand is pitching that inning. They're not holding him back for the ninth. He's facing Freddie Freeman. Same if it's Bryce Harper, if they're playing the Phillies. While he may say, ideally, Hand is his closer, maybe Hand ends up getting more saves than anybody else, more save opportunities than anybody else. I do think ultimately it is a matchup-based situation. And I think all these guys involved like that and embrace that which is a little bit more modern thinking. You know, only five years ago, that may not have been the thinking, but Daniel Hudson in particular, I asked him about it at the beginning of camp. He feels like this is absolutely the thing that it doesn't, who cares what inning you pitch? It's all about getting the most important outs whenever they matter and closing out a game as a group. We saw that work in 2019 once they got Hudson and Doolittle together. So I think that's where it's headed. I was a little surprised by Davey's wording of that. But again, Brad Hand, yeah, he's going to pitch the ninth, But if the toughest lefties are coming up in the eighth, he better be pitching the eighth or something's not going right. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Absolutely. Do not be a slave to the save. Do not get weighed down by roles. And to Davies' credit, he really hasn't done that during his time as Nats manager. He, he's shown to be pretty flexible when it comes to using high leverage relievers in non-ninth-inning situations. With Rainey, too, keep this in mind, and obviously time will tell what he ends up being, but this could be another one of these Mike Rizzo steals. December of 18, Tanner Rourke for Tanner Rainey. Rourke's got an ERA of 490 over the last two years. Rainey could end up being maybe the Nats' best reliever this season. Uh, We'll see on that. All right, uh, since we last did this podcast, too, Mark, we've had the Grapefruit League debuts for two of the Nats' top three pitchers, in Max Scherzer and Patrick Corbin. Scherzer pitching in that Friday night game uh, against St. Louis, so I guess we can start... Uh, with what he ended up doing, you know, coming off that sprained left ankle. I know it's not so much about, like, what his final line was, but just kind of how he looked and, uh, you know, did he come out of it okay from a health standpoint? What jumped out at you in terms of what Max did on Friday evening? Yeah, so he said that the ankle is really not an issue anymore. He was out there throwing it 100% and not thinking about it. So that's all good. And I thought it was interesting. He said, I was actually more worried about my arm than my ankle. And also my eyes perked up said, whoa, wait, what's going on with your arm? He said, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with the arm. But th- this is a good window into how Max Scherzer's mind thinks. When he sprains the ankle, and he said, hey, look, I've sprained my ankles before my left and my right. I know how this works, what happens as a result of it. He said his biggest concern after that was that he didn't do anything that might throw off his mechanics or change his mechanics in any way that might lead to him throwing the ball differently and then lead to an arm injury. And he's, as he put it, one little thing can lead to a bigger thing, with then, which then leads to a really big thing with your arm. Max is really in tune with this stuff, maybe more so than any other pitcher I've ever dealt with. So the fact that he was aware of all that and went out there the other night and was just making sure that his arm was fine and that he was throwing from the right slot and everything felt good, that to me was the key to it. The results almost didn't really matter. The velocity didn't really matter. He says now he'll start to ramp up the intensity. It's scary to think about what a Max Scherzer non-intensity start is like, but I think we just got a glimpse of it, and now he'll start to build it up now that he knows that he's fine physically. Yeah, the final line was two runs in one and two-thirds innings. The two runs, though, charged to him came on a double that was given up by the player who relieved him, Luis Avalon. So, you know, again, the results aren't that important. He did give up a couple of walks when he had each batter down 0-2, so, you know, you want to be bothered by that, go ahead and knock yourself out. It's funny, though, you mentioned the velocity. I thought this was kind of quirky. They ended up turning off the radar gun at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches there on Friday evening. The radar gun was registering velocities for Max of mostly in the 80s. And I guess they felt like that's not accurate. It's going to mess with Max's head. And so the gun got turned off. I got a kick out of that. Spring training radar guns are not the most reliable in baseball. I'll just say that. It's been known to happen other places. And as much as we all kind of fall slave to it and and reading into that stuff, you do have to remember sometimes that it may not be 100% accurate, especially in non-major league stadiums. So probably for the best that they turn that off and, and just let people, you know, not worry about how hard he's actually throwing. All right. So then with Patrick Corbin, so he makes his spring training debut Saturday afternoon in a rain-shortened game against the Miami Marlins and one run in two innings, three strikeouts, gave up a double and a single. But this is a good opportunity to get into Corbin because, you know, so much conversation obviously about Max and also about Steven Strasburg. And we spent a lot of time on John Lester because of his current situation. We even talked about the battle for the fifth spot with Fetty versus Voth versus Ross. And then there's Corbin. Corbin had a terrible 2020. Like, there's really no other way to say it. 11 starts. He had an ERA of 466. 
He gave up the most hits in Major League Baseball last season. Nobody gave up more hits than Patrick Corbin did, 85. And his strikeout rate plummeted. It was 10.8 over the previous two years, 8.2 this past year. His velocity was down substantially last season. His hard hit percentage allowed per stat cast was way up last season. Really wasn't a good year at all. Do we know what happened with Patrick? Why 2020 was such a disappointment? So I think this is going to be maybe the best example we have to determine whether the 2020 season and the way that it was ramped up real quickly to prepare for it, whether that had a real effect on pitchers or not. He believes, and others believe the same, but I think his is probably the most extreme case that we've seen of it. But he believes that the building yourself up for spring training originally, then shutting it down and trying to keep your, your arm going, then ramping up real quickly in July when they started up again and then pitching the season led to all this and he was not his usual self. And he believes that a normal spring this year, a normal offseason leading into it, six full weeks down there in Florida and pitching every fifth day will allow him to, to be the pitcher that he was. Now we're going to find out. Based on, you know, first outing, everything seems to be fine. But here is a guy, and I think we saw last year a reminder of, even though he can be really good, it's kind of a fine line with him. You know, Max Scherzer has five or six different pitches he can throw and go about it different ways. Patrick Corbin really has one way he goes about it, and that is he gets ahead with fastballs, and then once he's ahead, he goes to the slider. That slider is a devastating pitch, one of the best in baseball. It's one of those that even when the hitter knows it's coming, they can't touch it. They can't lay off it, uh, even when it's down and away out of the zone or down and in. And it's how he is able to be really effective, even when teams kind of know what's coming. But when he's just a little bit off, when he's not throwing fastballs for strikes, or when his fastball velocity is down and suddenly hittable, it changes everything. And now the hitter's can sit on that and or and not really be as much worried about the slider because he never gets to the slider late in the count. So I am real curious to see as this thing ramps up and as the season begins, does he look like the old Corbin or is there any bigger uh, cause for concern there? He's going into his age 31 season. It is year three of that six-year, $140 million contract that he signed in December 2018. You know, I, I think with Corbin, like to me, okay, in a very good rotation, as the Nats have had, he's a very good number three. I think like this is kind of where what happens with Max and Strasburg impact how you view Corbin. If Strasburg has another injury-ravaged season, or if Max, you know, continues to kind of not be Cy Young-level Max, but like you know, just decent Max or pretty good Max, Corbin, I don't think he's he's definitely not a number one in a very good rotation. I'm not even sure he's a number two. As a number three, like that's perfect. Like his role in 2019. That was exactly how you want Patrick Corbin to be, and he lived up to that. I think if they have to lean on him for more than he's capable of providing, I think that's where you start to get into some trouble. So hopefully the two guys in front of him stay healthy and perform, and then Corbin can kind of be what he was brought here to be, which was, again, not the ace, but just like the third man, a key part of a good top three in a rotation. If you remember, he essentially was brought in to replace Gio Gonzalez, who had that role for a long time. Nobody ever really thought of Gio as a number one or number two, although his first year here in 12, he wound up starting game one of the playoffs because of the Strasbourg shutdown and because Gio was really good that year. And then all too often over the years, he'd find himself pitching in those elimination games. And the idea all along was they needed to upgrade at that spot. So they didn't necessarily need another ace but they needed that guy who could be counted on behind Scherzer and Strasburg. And that's why they went and got Corbin. And so that was really good. One other point I want to make about him, I talked about fastball slider. 
He's also really working on incorporating his changeup more so that he does have an effective third pitch. If you think about it as a left-hander, a slider is breaking. If you're a right-handed hitter, a slider is breaking down and in on you. A changeup would break down and away. And so if you can just throw that enough to, to keep the hitters honest, it makes a big difference to have pitches that break in opposite directions. No doubt. So those are, of course, the Nats' top starting pitchers for right now. Last Thursday got a peek at the Nats starting pitchers of the future. It was a game against the New York Mets last Thursday afternoon, and we got to watch Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. Uh, These are the Nats' last two first-round picks. The Nats took Cavalli with a number 22 overall pick in the 2020 draft, took Rutledge with a number 17 pick in the 2019 draft. Cavalli tossed a scoreless and hitless second inning with a couple of strikeouts. The two strikeouts came after Cavalli actually got into some trouble. Leadoff walk to James McCann, then a one-out throwing error off a comeback. Or Rutledge had a scoreless third inning with strikeouts of two really good hitters for the Mets, Jeff McNeil and Dominic Smith. And Rutledge picked off Brandon Nemo at first base for the first out of having given up a leadoff single to him. Look, with the Nats, they can't rely on, you know, handing out $100 million plus contracts to free agent pitchers forever. Like, at some point, they do have to get back to developing starting pitching. It's not something they've done a very good job of, really, over the last decade or so of. You've got these two potential studs in Cavalli and Rutledge. Cavalli was actually the only national listed when MLB Pipeline put out its top 100 prospects in baseball back in January. Cavalli was prospect number 99 in the sport. So he, from that standpoint, is the Nats' top prospect right now. Rutledge could be a stud. I mean, the guy's listed as being, I think, something like 6'8". I mean, just like a freak of nature in terms of his size. I know it's not likely either guy pitches at the major league level this season. What do you think is the timetable, though, for Cavalli and Rutledge and when the Nats might call upon them to pitch at the major league level? Well, I think the key is that they both just need to pitch a full minor league season every fifth day. And and this is where, you know, one of the big travesties of, of the COVID season, from a baseball standpoint, obviously there are much larger issues in society, but from a baseball standpoint, is that it knocked out the entire minor league season. Cade Cavalli had just been drafted out of Oklahoma. All he could do was go and pitch at their alternate training site where he was facing the same teammates over and over, not in a truly competitive environment. Rutledge, who did get some time pitching in the low minor leagues after he was drafted in 19, lost a whole season himself to this. So it definitely has stunted a lot of prospects' growth. And when it comes to young pitchers, that's what they need to be doing. They need to be out there pitching every fifth day, building their arms up, And so I know the Nationals are going to be careful with them because of that. They've always shown a willingness to promote guys when they they show that they're ready, but they also are always very cognizant of the workload and not wanting to put these guys in a spot where they have to be counted on to pitch if their arms aren't ready for it yet. Number one, first and foremost, these guys need to go pitch a full season, however many starts that is, in 2020. And then their stuff and their ability to get hitters out will kind of dictate how quickly they can move up through the pipeline. They're both college pitchers, so that helps. It would seem that they'd be on a faster track than other guys. You know, they're already 23, I think, each of them, 22 or 23. So they're, we're not talking about teenagers here. And that's a big difference when it comes to um, to minor leaguers. What I liked what I saw from them in that very limited one inning apiece, and if you're watching the game on ESPN, you didn't even hear the announcers mention their names because they were too busy doing interviews on the side. But what I liked was that even though they both got into trouble, they both showed an ability to get out of it and showed the maturity and the stuff to be able to get out of it. Now, it's one inning in spring training. I'm not going to read too much into it, but that stood out to me more than anything, and they do look like maybe more legitimate pitching prospects than we've seen in a few years in terms of the stuff and the maturity. From a macro standpoint, 
Why have the Nats had such a hard time developing pitching over like the last decade or so? Like, I, mean, I think it's kind of snuck up on some people because you know we got so used to like Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, etc. And I know they traded away some of the prospects, right? Lucas Giolito, Dane Dunning, Ronaldo Lopez in the Adam Eaton trade, Jesus Lazardo in the Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen trade. I get that, but man, they don't seem to develop people anymore. Like, if they're going to fortify the rotation. It's either via trade or free agent signing. And then, like, someone who they want to see rise up, Eric Fetty, has had a hard time doing so. You know, we joke about Ross versus Fetty versus Voth for, like, the umpteenth year in a row. But to me, the truth is that is an indictment of the Nats system and that there hasn't been the production of someone to come up to rise up and grab that fifth spot by the throat. Like, a team with more pitching prospects wouldn't have the same three people every year battling for that number five spot. What do you think has happened when it comes to developing starting pitching? You're 100% right about that. And if you look at most organizations, they do have someone else coming up through the pipeline to challenge for those kind of spots. Or maybe they wouldn't have been in a situation where they needed to sign a John Lester over the winter because they already would have had an in-house candidate. So a few things going on here. Like you mentioned, the trades, I think, is, is an important caveat to it. I mean, those are some Big-name pitchers who look like they're going to have good careers, Giolito and uh, uh, Luzardo in, in, in particular with the A's. Now, also remember, though, Giolito, when they saw him here, was pretty underwhelming. He's not the same guy that we've now seen in Chicago. He's done a complete overhaul of his mechanics. And people who are, are still upset about that trade, I would say I'm not 100% convinced that it would have worked out for him here that because he was in a high-pressure situation here where they were going to need him to pitch every fifth day or, if not, have to be sent down at the first sign of struggles, they couldn't afford to let him fail. And where the White Sox, he failed for a full year. He was the worst starting pitcher in baseball, figured out what the problem was, uh, revamped his mechanics, and now has come back and looks like a true ace. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a a mistake in the end, but I'm not so sure that it would have worked out had he stayed here. But really, going all the way back to Strasburg— They have not drafted and developed their own starting pitcher who's made at least, I want to say it's at least 30 starts for them since Strasburg. The only other guys who've even been in the mix are guys like Ross Detweiler, Taylor Jordan, who was never really panned out. Fetty is getting to that point. Voth is getting to that point where they're starting to make more starts, but they have not panned out. Some of this is as a team that generally wins, they're picking lower in the first round. So you're picking in the low 20s often, but... To combat that, the St. Louis Cardinals, who traditionally win, the L.A. Dodgers, who traditionally win, they're drafting Walker Bueller and Jack Flaherty in the mid to late first round, and these guys are panning out. So it's not an entire excuse here for the Nationals. They do need to be better at this. They're also focusing more so now on Latin America than they have in the past, so there may be some more coming along the way. But ultimately, to sustain success in the big leagues, the way that they expect to. You have to have a steady pipeline of your own guys coming up. It can't be all free agents. You have to have that next wave that is more affordable because they're making minimum salaries for a few years and not have to go out and spend $100 million on free agents. Andy McPhail, who used to run the Orioles, had a saying. I don't know that it's his saying. He was the guy I heard use it, though, and it was simply grow the arms by the bats. You know, the idea being that you don't want to have to be dependent on paying big money for starting pitching because pitchers get hurt, and so many of these big money contracts for pitchers don't work out. Like, you really want to be able to grow your arms, and the Nats have gotten away from that. Not on purpose, and we, we know they're trying, but... Uh, it hasn't happened. So I, I think it's imperative that guys like Cavalli and Rutledge pan out. Oh, uh, Mason Denneberg, the other guy, part of this like recent trifecta, I know he had like shoulder surgery in 19. Where is he at right now in terms of his development? Yeah, I haven't heard about him this spring, what he's doing, but he is another guy who has had arm issues and has not 
been able to pitch nearly as much as they expected. Now, he was a high school arm they picked, and there's always a little more risk with those. So he is younger. There's more time for him, but he has not certainly been able to pitch as much as he would have liked. The other name to put out there as a first-round pick was Seth Romero, who we did see briefly in the big leagues last year. He's in big league camp this year, a guy who's had a lot of off-the-field issues, which is why he fell as far down as he did in the draft, and that also delayed his timeline. He wound up having Tommy John surgery. So, I mean, you can see that they've tried. I mean, generally speaking, they draft a pitcher in the first round. More often than not, it's a college arm and usually a big guy. And for various reasons, they have not all panned out yet. And you're right. These two kids that we just saw last week, Cavalli and Rutledge, they're pinning a lot of hopes on those two. If they don't pan out, that's another indictment. And that's going to be years later until somebody else comes up through the system. So they do need at least one, if not both these guys, to prove to be the real deal. All right, one more item before we get to Mark's story time. He's got a good one today for us. So the Nationals in 2020, it was not a good season as we know. A lot of things went wrong. And one of the things that was a real problem, and I don't think gets enough attention, is how bad the Nats were defensively. If you go by the defensive run-save metric, the Nationals were the worst defensive team in baseball in 2020. A major league worst minus 43 defensive run-save for the Nats last season. Victor Robles' defense plummeted, but he wasn't the only one who struggled defensively. Juan Soto regressed defensively. Trey Turner, at least via the defensive run-save metric, did not have a very good season. But there's kind of a more global point to be made here. The Nationals have not finished in the top 10 in the majors in defensive run-saved since 2014. The Nats have consistently been a bottom third of the majors defensive team for years, 20th in 2019, 25th in 18, 25th in 17, tied for 16th in 2016, 22nd in 2015. They were tied for 10th in 2014. So the point is, this has been like a year-in, year-out situation where the defense hasn't been good. And I know some people can kind of be like, ah, oh, defense, you know, whatever. It's like, no, a lot of the good teams now are good defensively. The Dodgers last season were second in the majors in defensive runs saved. The Rays for years have been a top five caliber defensive ball club. When the Pittsburgh Pirates were making postseason after postseason a few years ago, a big part of that was their defense and their aggressive employment of shifting, things like that. What do we think, Mark, about this defense this season? Because the truth is, on paper, there are causes for concern that this is going to be another mediocre to poor defensive team. But what do you make of what we're going to see from the Nats in the field this year? Well, let's start with the potential positives here. And number one on that list is Victor Robles, who was, by statistics, the best center fielder in baseball in 2019. And I thought that made a huge difference for them and then was statistically one of the worst in 2020. They believe that that had a lot to do with his weight gain, that he just didn't have that first step and that agility that they're used to from him. He wound up having to reposition himself to play deeper than he had in the past. And therefore, a lot of balls fell in in front of him on little pop-ups and bloopers. So if he is back to being an elite center fielder, which he has always been, last year was the anomaly there then that changes a lot of the equation. So number one, I think, is Victor Robles. Number two is Juan Soto now being in right field, which was his position coming up through the minors. He only came to left field when the Nationals called him up because that's where the hole was uh, because they had a guy named Bryce Harper in right field. So now that he's able to move to his more natural position, I think the hope would be that that is an improvement. Trey Turner's a better shortstop than he was last year. He knows it. He's admitted it. I think he's working hard on it. So I think that helps them as well. And then I think behind the plate, they're going to be better, particularly at throwing out runners. Kurt Suzuki, God bless him. He did a lot for them to help him win a World Series. But his arm 
was almost non-existent. I mean, he, he only threw out about 5% of base runners the last couple of years. I think Jan Gomes and Alex Avila combined should be better at that. And on top of that, and I just asked Davey about this on Sunday, they're really working with their pitchers this spring on being better at holding runners on base. It's not always a catcher's thing. There's a lot to it of how good is the pitcher at either throwing over or just adjusting their timing. And I looked up the numbers last year, especially late in games. Opponents stole 12 out of 13 against the Nationals from the seventh inning on last year. Those are important at bats. You know, you guy gets a leadoff walk or leadoff single or even two out walk or single. And if you can just hand him second base, that's a totally different situation than if he's on first. So I think those are all reasons that it could be better. There are still concerns about some of the other guys and whether the big pickups of the offseason, particularly Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber, not known for defense, is that going to be an issue moving forward if they aren't what they're supposed to be? I'm sure Mike Rizzo values defense. I'm not going to sit here and say that he doesn't, but I think it's kind of telling. Their defense was really bad last year again, and the two primary position player acquisitions this offseason were two guys who are not just not good defensively. They have reputations for being awful defensively. I mean, let's just tell it like it is. Josh Bell has been a really bad first baseman for years. Kyle Schwarber has been a really bad left fielder for years. Now, I know they said, like with Schwarber, they don't think the defense is as bad as some of the publicly available stats indicate. And that's something we should point out. The defensive metrics that are available to those of us in the public, things like defensive run saved, outs above average, which is a stat cast number, A lot of people inside baseball will tell you those metrics are flawed. A lot of teams use proprietary data to measure defense. So, like, you have to always kind of take the defensive metrics with a grain of salt, especially in a shortened season like last year. So that is true. Again, with the Nats, it wasn't just a last year thing. This has been going on for years. The defense has been bad. And then the offseason, their two big position player pickups are guys with bad defensive reputations. The other thing I'll say is this. When you are a starting pitching dependent team like the Nats are, I think it's imperative that your defense is good. You've got to be good at turning batted balls into outs, and especially for pitchers who aren't high strikeout guys. Like It's one thing with Scherzer and Strasburg, they strike guys out, but John Lester is not a high strikeout guy. Joe Ross isn't a particularly high strikeout guy. Patrick Corbin's strikeout rate last year dipped down big time. You know, We'll see what it ends up being in 2021, but if you're going to do this thing of we're all about our pitching, you better have good defense behind that pitching. You better be good at converting balls and play into outs and the Nats just haven't been good enough at that in recent years. They have not. You're absolutely right. I, I was immediately thinking of John Lester, who at this point is a ground ball guy. For him to be successful, they have to make the outs behind him. You know, we haven't mentioned Carter Keboom, who shockingly, out of everybody who played consistently last year, was the best rated defensive player, even though he was brand new at third base. That was incredible. I know. Now, I think one aspect of that that helped is that a lot of his value came from when he was shifted. And the way that they do it is they don't just move all four infielders around. They actually let Trey Turner stay at the shortstop spot and had Kibu move over to essentially second base position where he'd played more in the minors. And he got a lot of value from that. But you would hope that that what we saw last year from him was legit and he can do that again. Here's another thing about the shifting. And this was one of those that really was mind boggling to me. They increased their shifting last year a ton from where they were in the past. And it didn't help at all. They actually had a negative defensive run saved while in the shift, essentially saying that they would have been better off playing it straight up than going to the shift. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what this is going to lead to as far as how much they shift this year. But if the whole point of doing that is to help you get more outs and they actually were getting fewer outs as a result, that's a problem. Yeah. uh, You know, it might be another indictment of who's doing the shifting. Like you can shift a bad fielder wherever you want. He's still a bad fielder. Like if he's not catching the baseball, then that's a problem. But defense has got to be better. I think, like as you described, there is a path by which it is better. Like, it, just Robles by himself, if he gets back to what he was in 2019, 
that's huge, right? You want to be strong up the middle with Gomes, with Trey Turner better, with Robles better. That would be huge for this season, but obviously a lot of question marks. All right, nobody has covered the Nats longer and better than Mark Zuckerman. We are leaning on that experience for some story time uh, with the Nats Chat Podcast, and I have an understanding that Mark has a particularly good one today, so... Let's go ahead and uh, see what we got here, but this could be fun. So I don't want this to turn into a regular, you know, Mark just tells an old story about spring training in Vieira that involves Jim Bowden uh, <laughs> thing, but this is another old story about Vieira that involves Jim Bowden. You know, look, there's a lot to choose from here. <laughs> there, it's not like there's only one or two Jim Bowden Vieira stories. So um, this one goes to literally the first game in Nationals history, the first spring training game in Vieira, which was a big deal. I mean, it was a packed press box. It was a sellout crowd. The game was nationally broadcast. This was a big deal. A team wearing Washington uniforms playing a big league game for the first time in 33 years. And Bowden, as only he could, wanted to hype this up and make it as big a deal as he could. And so he actually commissioned a Nationals fight song, I guess we'll call it called We Are the Washington Nationals. And he found a band that he knew from Cincinnati called Blessed Union of Souls. They actually, some people may know of them. They're not, they're not nobodies. They had a little bit of a, of a career, I suppose. And they put together this song that I guess would best be described as the poor man's ACDC. And uh, all of a sudden, I mean, what, nobody knew this was coming, okay? And as the Nationals take the field... For the first time in 33 years, a team from Washington is taking the field in the spring training game. Fans are on the feet. Everybody's excited. Over the loudspeakers at Space Coast Stadium comes this blaring hard rock and this singer wailing. And I know we're going to play a clip of it. I, I don't even know if it does it justice if you can't hear the whole song. You can find it. It's out there if you want to look for it. Screaming, you know, we are the Washington Nationals. And the lyrics were so specific. It mentioned Frank Robinson in it. It mentioned Jose Guillen. There's, there's a section of the song where there's actually like a fake announcer giving play-by-play of a Jose Guillen home run. Five on a deep right field. Mail's going back. It's a homer. How about that? Jose Guillen has done it again. As he rounds third and heads for home, the sun shines on Washington again. And... We're in the press box and we're looking at each other like, what, what was that? What's going on here? Who, who wrote that? What, what is this about? You ever heard anything like this in your life? Well, afterwards, two things happened. Number one is that Jim Bowden, of course, is so proud of this and he can't wait to tell us all about it and hype up his, his friends from Cincinnati who wrote the song. And, you know, he thinks it's the greatest thing ever. Well, someone else did not think it was the greatest thing ever, and that was Tony Tavares, who was the team president at this time. Tony was essentially an employee of Major League Baseball, which owned the team. He was brought in when they were the Expos to run that franchise and essentially help them through what was going to be contraction at first and then ultimately relocation. It was a thankless job. Tony knew that he wasn't in it for the long haul, that as soon as the Nationals had new ownership, he was going to be out. And he was, but he did it as a good longtime baseball man. He had uh, run the Anaheim Angels, as they were known back then, and the Mighty Ducks as well. He'd been in, in sports for a long time. A bit of a short temper. He and Jim Bowden didn't always get along perfectly, and he didn't exactly hire Bowden. This was an MLB hire. And when he heard the song, he had a very different reaction. 
and essentially said that song will never be played again. I don't know. You know, I didn't. I certainly didn't approve this thing. Whoever did is going to have to answer for that. And we are not playing this song again. And sure enough, that song has never been played again publicly. It was only played on the first day of spring training in 2005. Never again. It lives in infamy. Like I said, it's out there. You can look it up and find it. We are the Washington Nationals, and you'll hear a clip on here. But that is the one and only time that it was ever officially played at a Nationals game. Wow. So on a podcast installment in which we discuss the two-week tenure of Jeremy Jeffress, something that lasted shorter than Jeffress' (laughs) time with the Nats, this song. That's incredible. Shorter than a Jeremy Jeffress. We are the Washington Nationals lasted 24 hours, and that was it. So the other thing I always remember about Jim Bowden is at the Manny Acta introductory presser when Bowden tried to make a pun with uh, Acta's name, and he goes, time to activate, baby. I I guess Bowden had some showman in him, didn't he? Oh, he absolutely had showman in him. And look, sometimes it worked, and and maybe you needed that, especially in those early days, but sometimes he just couldn't help himself, and it didn't come across as well and didn't necessarily always paint the organization in the best light. It's one of those things where if they had won, if he had acquired some better players— Maybe you kind of deal with that stuff. But once things weren't going well on the field, uh, that act wore very thin very quickly. Well, we know that the Nats, especially from like 06 through 2011, a treasure trove of stories. And so you never have to apologize for telling too many Jim Bowden stories. I'll try to space them out a little bit. I'll, I'll try to get come up with some other ones that don't involve him. But, but it, it, it's tough to pass them up. Because the Nats got good, we can laugh at those days. If they were still bad, it wouldn't be so funny. But it's funny now because things got a whole lot better uh, once he got ousted. All right, well, that will do it for Mark Zuckerman and myself, Al Galdi, on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Keep the feedback coming. Like we said earlier uh, on today's show, if you are a listener outside of the D.C. area, let us know. Send us a photo, as our guy Tom did from Chiba, Japan at Nats underscore chat on Twitter. You can email the program to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. For advertising inquiries, contact Tim Shovers again, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back with you later in the week. We'll talk to you soon.